when I first started at the, the last school I was at, um, you know, I was, we were going through the procedures for dealing with student records and things like that. And just immediately, you know, as if it was a totally normal thing to say, uh, my supervisor said, you know, you might want to do a pronoun check-in if you're ever concerned. And then the example she gave is, for example, if you have a, a girl who comes in with a short haircut, you might want to ask her, hey, are your pronouns still she, her? And I'm just sitting there like, what on earth are you talking? How do you not see that as the most sexist, regressive, conservative thing you could ever say? But a lot of these people who think of themselves as very progressive and very against uh, gender stereotypes don't have an issue with it. And I, I must admit, I'm a little baffled by that. I, I don't know how that would not strike you as obviously bad that the the category of girl is now reserved almost entirely for for you know children who practice femininity. And I think that's seems obviously bad, but um, you know, I, I think that's the way it is right now. Hello, listeners. Welcome to Broadview. I'm Lisa Selen Davis, and my guest today is a teacher in a public school in a blue state with a front row seat to how gender issues are playing out and a unique insight based on his own experiences, including once identifying as transgender himself. I asked him to speak because I'd heard him say something recently that astounded me. He noted that there's more allowable wiggle room for feminine boys today, perhaps in reaction to cultural discussions of toxic masculinity, but that any girl expressing even a hint of traditional masculinity will think of herself as non-binary or trans. We talked about what it's really like for teachers who are asked to embody the role of counselor, spiritual leader, and friend in a world where schools are performing many functions besides education, and how parents who don't share the belief systems taught in schools should navigate this difficult time. For reasons you can likely guess, fear of losing his job and or his connection with students, he's remaining anonymous. Here's my interview with a Blue State teacher. So welcome to my anonymous guest. We're going to talk today about what it's like to be a teacher during this time when there's so much contentiousness around sex and gender issues. So can you just talk to me first about how long you've been teaching and when you started to notice a change in terms of either how sex and gender were talked about and represented in the curricula and or um, when the students started changing. Yeah, so uh, thanks so much for having me here. Um, so I have not been in public schools for very long. I've been teaching in public schools since 2020. Um, so I'm just starting my you know second kind of full year of, of teaching in public schools. But before that I was teaching um, in some private schools. And then before that, I was working as a tutor through a local college, a community college. Um, and then before that, I had my own small tutoring business. So I've been in education now for quite some time. Gosh, uh, coming up on eight or nine years, but, um, you know, only in a public school for the last couple of years. So I would say that I really actually came into the public schools kind of maybe at the height or right after the height of, I think, a lot of the the whole movement um, was really peaking, right? So I think that um, in terms of, you know, I don't know if I have the greatest uh, 
um, kind of control group of saying, you know, hey, it used to be this way. All I can compare it to is, you know, my own times in high school 15 years ago, uh, or gosh, that's wrong, more like 18 years ago, I guess now, gosh. But um, so um, I would say that I actually kind of my whole uh, career of, of, you know, going through training and doing student teaching and then working in all these different places has kind of, I really felt like I went through that process as the emphasis on gender and sex was really growing in these areas. So um, it's not so much that I saw a big shift, you know, where things used to be one way and then there were another, more it felt like I was kind of being carried along by that wave. I came in sort of as I think it was really starting to become bigger and then I kind of watched it grow. But um, I think uh, even by the time I first got into the industry, I think it was already an issue that people cared about, not as big as it is now, but I think it was kind of just, uh, just reaching its kind of first peak of, of, of importance and uh, emphasis and kind of political, you know, uh, touchiness. So, um, and then it feels like it's only gotten maybe, maybe a little wilder even from there. But um, in terms of my students, that is something where I think I have seen, you know, if I look over the last four or so years, I do think I've seen every year that's become a bigger and bigger thing among students. Um, you know, I don't have any hard facts or figures about kind of, uh, you know, the exact number in each year. But I would say that just in terms of generally, you know, overhearing it in conversation, hearing students who are seeing students who are really passionate about it. And then, of course, seeing students who identify as trans themselves. I've definitely seen an increase of that since, say, like 2019, 20 or so over the last couple of years. Um, but uh, and of course, it's wildly different from how it was, you know, when I was first going through high school myself. What was it like when you were in high school and what what was that experience like for you? Yeah, so it was a weird situation because, you know, I came of age kind of at what you might call like the height of the first uh, kind of big gay, not the first, of course, but the the in that 2007, 8, 9, 10, maybe, where I think um, it was kind of the first wave where gay rights activism was becoming a really big thing among more just like general not super political, not super activist people, but just general liberals or whatever, right? So um, I kind of came of age in my high school years where that was really important to me was, you know, uh, kind of the being into uh, gay rights and supporting gay marriage and things like that was um, kind of a, a big thing for, for the more like liberal students my age, right? Um, you know, having come out of the previous big thing, which was like the war in Iraq and hating George Bush and all that stuff. But um, as that kind of became less and less of a of a big social thing, I think a lot of us young, kind of more politically aware, kind of, um, you know, uh, lefty or whatever students, uh, of which there weren't as many, of course, back then, but um, there still were plenty. And, and I think we kind of moved uh, into, a lot of us did a lot of gay rights stuff and gay rights activism and things like that. And so when I was young at that age, um, you know, I started, I actually was, something of an early adopter of a lot of the gender stuff. Um, you know, it's interesting that I hadn't really thought about this period in my life a lot. So when I heard, you know, set up this interview or whatever, I actually took a little bit of time to go back to some old like email, um, you know, email accounts I had from back then, or I found an old account I had on like a video game website and just was like, huh, what was I really talking about? What was I thinking? Um, and, and so it really struck me how back then, stuff was not quite as, uh, it definitely wasn't as as accessible and um, it wasn't as normalized. Um, so, you know, nowadays I have a lot of students who 
even if they're not even super deep into um, this stuff, they, they would know what non-binary versus transgender versus genderqueer versus, you know, X, Y, and Z would be. That's those terms have kind of entered the mainstream. But when I was that age, um, you know, we're, we're talking 2007, eight, nine, maybe, um, you know, it was obviously out there, but it was less common knowledge among even like my more liberal friends. And I stumbled upon it mainly through online stuff, just, you know, I was really into a lot of lefty causes. I was into a lot of kind of more radical politics at that age, like a lot of like 17 year olds or whatever are. Um, and so I, um, you know, I uh, kind of got into that around that time. And then um, I just was really interested in it, you know, so I, I was saying, like I said, I, I looked through some of those old accounts and I saw that I, you know, at times I, I was identifying as transgender, at times I was identifying as um, non-binary, non but, that term i i never really used that term specifically the term i was more familiar with and i think was more popular at the time was gender queer which i think is now actually becoming more of a popular term again but at that time that was the big one i heard a lot was there was transgender and there was gender queer and so that was what i got into when i was that age um but nowadays i look back and i'm like that was basically what non-binary is is today right that kind of um you know the that kind of messing with gender and, and not identifying as a, a, a man or a woman or a boy or a girl or whatever. So I, I got into that and, um, you know, I would say it was a fairly important part of my identity for, you know, a couple of years. And then I think it was around 2000, gosh, you know, I'm spitballing here, but probably 2010, maybe 2011, that I sort of uh, moved out of that. I just, um, you know, I'd stayed in the radical politics world, but uh, I just kind of started focusing on other things. I got into, um, some more feminist causes and those more feminist causes at the time, you know, it's seems so weird to say now, but at the time there was actually maybe a little bit of tension, I think, between some feminist stuff and the er, the earlier um, transgender movement. So, you know, uh, it was still not, you know, kind of, they were not seen as the same sort of thing in the way they are now. So um, I kind of moved away from that and more towards the more explicitly feminist stuff. And then um, as that happened, I just sort of lost interest. And, you know, I never had any kind of big, uh, you know, detransition thing or anything like that, because I hadn't really transitioned in any meaningful way. I was just, you know, dressing different and, you know, uh, and, you know, being annoying at parties and all that. But it was, um, but, you know, it was that kind of just slowly kind of lost interest in it as I grew older and got, you know, maybe a little more mature in my politics. Um, and then from from then on, I just kind of didn't even really think about it for for a little bit until kind of the second wave of gender stuff started popping up, you know, um, maybe 2013, 14, 15. And, um, and, you know, then I kind of got back into it and was more curious about it. Um, just to see like, oh, hey, this is, you know, this is kind of becoming big again. I remember when I was doing that. So, um, yeah, so, you know, like I said, you know, I was never, I definitely don't consider myself like a detransitioner in the way that a lot of people nowadays might identify, because, you know, I never went through any sort of real serious uh you know medical or uh regime or anything like that but i did um you know kind of get into it in a social sense had a lot of friends who were in that queer uh, community kind of saw myself as gender queer or uh you know i think nowadays probably would have seen myself more as non-binary um at the time and i probably kept that up for a good you know two or three years and what did you get out of it why did you identify that way yeah what did yeah you yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a great question. You know, I look back and part of me is like, man, I don't really know. I, I, I read a lot of what I was saying back then. And, um, you know, it's like, yeah, I recognize that person. But man, a lot of this doesn't really make sense. So, 
you know, in a lot of ways, I think it's hard for me to look back and see what was really so appealing about it now that I'm not 16 or 17 or whatever. But um, at the same time, I also do understand what the appeal was because, you know, I was I was raised in a really religious family. Um, my parents were not really that socially conservative, right? Like, you know, they were pro-gay and, um, you know, my mom was really into feminism and stuff like that. So, but I was still in a, a religious household. And it was one of those things where even though, um, even though my church wasn't actually this really oppressive right-wing conservative thing, I almost kind of wanted it to be, right? Because I was in that lefty world and I, I wanted to really be out rebelling, even though there wasn't much to rebel against at like a mainstream Methodist church. Um, so, um, you know, I think part of it was it was just kind of a, a bit of a middle finger that I think a lot of teenagers like to throw up at the world or uh, at conservatives or religion or whatever. But it was also, I think, because, you know, as a kid, I was very, um, I was a very feminine kid, you know, I mean, I don't like to think about things that way. But, it, you know, I think a lot of people would have looked at me and said, no, that kid's very feminine. I was, you know, very soft spoken. Um, a lot of people definitely assumed when I was a teenager, even younger, that I was gay. Um, and so um, I think that uh, I think that a lot of that I, I was really looking, you know, I was looking at myself and I was saying, like, man, I'm just not very good at being like a man or, you know, a, a teenage boy or whatever, you know, I wasn't really super athletic. I wasn't super popular. I wasn't super good, good with girls, anything like that. So I think, you know, it was kind of this thing of, you know, I, I, I really felt like I wasn't living up to that role as like a man. And then I kind of found a community where that kind of had an explanation for that, right? Like I, you know, the, the, queer community was there to say like, oh, well, there's the reason that you feel like you're not doing it right is because that role wasn't actually meant for you. You're not actually a man or you're not actually a boy or whatever. And that explains why you find those, you know, kind of stereotypes associated with that uncomfortable. And that made a lot of sense to me as a kid, right? Like I, you know, when I was that age, it was, there was something really nice about being told like, oh, it's not that you're like failing at what you should be doing. It's that you just, you you know, you shouldn't actually be doing this in the first place. You're, you're, you're not actually the tough guy. You're just, you know, you're, you're genderqueer, you're somewhere in the middle or, you know, you're, you're whatever. So I think that was a really big appeal as a kind of a narrative to help me understand why I wasn't, you know, I wasn't kind of living up to gendered expectations. And I also think that, you know, it just, even at the time, and I'm sure it's even more so now, but even at the time, I think it was just a, it was a way for me to kind of mark myself out as unique, as interesting. I think people thought it was interesting and wanted to know more about it, especially in my kind of like liberal enclave. And, um, you know, I don't ever think I did it in like a really cynical way of like, hey, I'm just going to do this to get people to like me. But I do think the attention and kind of validation you get when you, when you do that, again, even back then, you know, 10, 12, 15 years ago, whatever, um, uh, you know, it was meaningful to me as a kid who didn't always necessarily get that from other things. So I think that was it, you know, there, there was the kind of just general teenage rebellion part of it. But there were also real issues where I just didn't feel like I was very good at being a boy or very good at being a man. And I found this community that said, hey, it's that's actually totally fine, because, you know, turns out you aren't one. And so, you know, I found that comforting. And it was a, a really nice narrative to kind of uh, explain what was going on, because otherwise there wasn't really any narrative out there except like, well, you just need to toughen up and get better at get better at playing sports and, you know, hitting on girls and all that stuff. Right. So it was really kind of the only narrative I had to explain why that wasn't working for me. Yeah, it's making me think of two things. One is that 
blanking on her name. Oh, uh, yes. An educator in Canada named Carlene Pendleton. Hmm. I, I, I interviewed her for my book, Tomboy, and she'd gone around, she's a butch lesbian. She'd gone around, um, doing workshops with kids about gender all over Ontario, even in rural places. And she discovered that even the most outwardly gender conforming appearing students felt that they were doing gender wrong. Yeah. That the, that the football captain of the football team worried that he had, you know, girl knees mm-hmm. and the head cheerleader, you know, felt too masculine in some way. And that each person had an idea of how they were supposed to be based on their sex and felt they were failing on some level at it. Yeah. And I think a lot about myself at that age where, you know, not to be hard on my, you know, 16 year old self, but I think there was a lot of kind of that, you know, general teenage narcissism where I I think I looked at those, you know, football players or whatever, you know, the cool kids. And I just assumed that this was totally working out perfectly for them. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I, I looked at them and I said, well, obviously they must love everything that comes with being a man. And, um, you know, nowadays I look back and I'm like, I bet, yeah, like you say, I bet it was actually really hard for them too in a lot of ways. And I think that as a teenager, it's just really hard to step out of your, uh, step out of that mindset that teenagers have where, you know, their, you know, their struggles are totally different from everyone else's and no one else understands and all that. I mean, I think that's just part of being a teenager, but it makes it really hard when your only comparison is with other people who from the outside look like they're doing great, you know? And it's like, gosh, you know, from, you know, it's like, I got, I got to experience my insides and their outsides. And it was hard to, for me to even consider that maybe it wasn't a, you know, maybe it was a raw deal for everyone and that everyone was unhappy with this stuff. I did really just assume it was kind of me, right? Especially because a lot of other people in my community and my family and things like that were really kind of traditional um, alpha men or whatever, right? Not in a bad way, but they were just more, you know, the kind of guys who would go out for hikes and doing, you know, playing football and stuff like that. And so, um, you know, and of course, as I've grown up, I've seen that they struggled in a lot of ways with that stuff. And But when you're young and you have a community that kind of encourages you to think of yourself as different from everyone else, it can really break those bonds of solidarity and 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 break those relationships in ways that make it harder for you to understand uh you know that other people are going through the same things and that's actually one thing i really really do recall from that time period and i see it a lot today as well is there's kind of a there's a real negative stigma attached to that idea that well everybody struggles with this these things Mm -hmm. and i understand i understand why because obviously some people have unique difficulties and just saying oh well everyone feels that way can be dismissive but sometimes it feels like people go so far in the other direction where even trying to hint at a kind of shared experience or trying to establish that kind of sympathy or um, compassion with others can really get people coming down hard on you because they feel like that invalidates them and i mean i know that my my mom when i was growing up would would often say like well i think a lot of people have those problems and it made me really mad because i was like no you don't understand you know it's it's not i'm not like everyone else or whatever so i think that um yeah i think that you know that's part of it is i think there's a real fear there was a real fear back then and i think there's a real fear now in kind of uh, emphasizing those universal experiences because people do see them as being invalidating or kind of taking away their unique claim uh, that they've built a real identity around. 
So can we talk a little bit about that identity, which is very rooted in, I'm having a singular experience that everyone around me must validate. Um, but you had talked about that identity being not just about sex or gender, but, but about victimhood, I guess, on some level and kids opting into being oppressed. Um, if yeah, that's, I mean, yeah, tell me what you what you've seen. Yeah, I mean, I think that's actually a really interesting shift between kind of my experience with the community, you know, a decade ago or more like you know, more than a decade ago now, but, um, you know, 15 years ago or whatever. And then um, my experience today is that back then there wasn't as much of an emphasis on being a victim and there's more of an emphasis on being just sort of like a an outcast or a sort of weirdo mm -hmm. right and and that's a dismissive way of framing it but what i mean is that back then uh me and my friends we weren't really concerned with being at the bottom of like a political hierarchy we didn't really you know the idea wasn't that we were oppressed in fact, I think we would have really bristled at that because I think part of what we saw ourselves as doing is that we were sort of voluntarily placing ourselves outside of the kind of dominant culture or whatever, right? So I think back then I didn't think of myself as like, oh, I was born genderqueer or whatever, and I'm being oppressed by society. You know, I, I saw it as this sort of thing of like, no, I'm actually going to, you know, extend the middle finger to society and say, I don't want to be part of you or whatever. I want to be a different, I want to be an outcast or whatever. And so there wasn't that same kind of political lens. There was more of almost like a social or a community lens on it. Whereas nowadays as a teacher, um, the political lens has really overwhelmed anything else. Where nowadays, you know, um, if you had told me at 16 that, you know, I was, I was, you know, being oppressed, I would have said, no, I, I'm too cool for that. I'm too edgy for that. I don't even care. But nowadays, it feels like many of the, the people I encounter in the community, including students, but also adults, there's much more of an emphasis on that kind of political lens. And I think that's been a big shift in the next over the last you know, 10 years or so is kind of the more of an explicit kind of power hierarchy developing, which I think is valuable in many cases, because I think there are power hierarchies in our society. But I think that it has sometimes become, um, you know, the concept of being oppressed has I think in many cases become untethered from the actual like material reality of oppression, where mm -hmm. it feels like there are a lot of people who sort of see themselves, they're, they're oppressed for being oppressed in a way, if you know, if that makes sense, right? Like there's no real foundation for any of it. It's just sort of that they have decided they are a member of some oppressed group, some of which are extremely, you know, tenuous groupings. And then it's kind of like the essence of that group is just oppression instead of there being real analysis of like what's actually going on in a sociological sense, which again, you don't expect from kids, right? You don't expect students to have that kind of robust materialist analysis of what's going on. But I think in the, in the absence of that, um, oppression becomes a sort of free floating signifier that can kind of be claimed at any point and carries, you know, it carries real meaningful weight. I mean, you know, uh, I think some people can be too dismissive and say, oh, you know, everyone just wants to be oppressed nowadays. And I think that's unfair. I think there are people who are really feeling mistreated or marginalized and they, you know, are drawn to identities because of that. But I also do think that there are definitely situations where I think people have real anxiety about being kind of privileged and have real anxiety about their sort of 
power that they have. And I think that um, it does lead people to kind of search for ways they might be oppressed uh, just because it kind of helps relieve that tension. I mean, I think that uh, I see a lot of students where who are politically active and they are, you know, the kind of classic cis, straight, white. Um, and I really do notice a real palpable like uh, uh, anxiety they have around that. And I, and I think that it, um, you know, I don't think it's as simple as saying all of these issues are just kids looking to be oppressed. But I do think that that kind of um, anxiety about one's position in a social hierarchy and a kind of a sense that privileged, powerful people are bad and oppressed, marginalized people are good does, you know, it creates powerful incentives for students to kind of discover um, oppressions that maybe otherwise they wouldn't have noticed at all or wouldn't have centered in the way they center them now. So some of it is grappling with their power and position in society. That's the more generous way of looking at it. <laughs> that is generous, yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting because you said something, I heard you say something recently that almost knocked me out of my chair, which was that you see that there's an allowance for feminine boys, that that's understood. Mm -hmm. um, that the anytime a girl expresses a hint of masculinity, she's kind of immediately labeled as or labels herself trans or non-binary non or other ways opting out of girlhood or a female identity. And it makes me think that there's a strange twist from the revulsion of traditional masculinity in that it actually created a little space for femininity, which there has never been but for, in boys, but it's just such an incredible switch. And of course, I'm not in the schools. I have I have children in the schools, but I'm not in there witnessing this. So can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, so that's definitely one of the big things I noticed when I first got back into high schools as a teacher that was so different from me growing up is when I was growing up, um, you know, it was during a time in some ways, you know, uh, you know, kind of what you might call like pop feminism or, or kind of just general kind of, you know, girl power stuff was really big and, and in demand. And, you know, you, you were kind of seeing a lot of that there. And so I grew up in a time where, you know, obviously there were still very strict gender norms. There are still very strict gender norms today. But um, at the time where, you know, it wasn't weird to see girls with short haircuts. It wasn't weird to see girls trying out kind of like grunge style baggy clothes and stuff like that. Um, you know, I saw that, whereas I, I rarely, if ever, saw even the hint of femininity among boys, right? When I was growing up, you know, for example, when I was growing up, I had long hair and I was, I was actually teased and, and bullied for it for uh, more than I think people might expect. Um, but even just 15 years ago or whatever, it was a lot harsher, I think, on boys doing stuff like that. Um, you know, uh, I never saw boys who were you know, wearing makeup or painting their nails or wearing skirts or whatever. I mean, that was seen as really transgressive um, and, and really, you know, it was not even among fairly liberal people. I think a lot of them thought that would, was really weird if a boy would do that. Whereas um, girls, it wasn't considered that weird for a girl to get a short haircut or to, you know, not paint her nails or whatever, um, uh, wear 
jeans and t-shirts and things like that. So there was a, there was a very kind of a little bit of an asymmetry there where there were a lot of gender roles imposed on both boys and girls, but definitely it was stricter with boys. Um, and then I get into the high schools nowadays. And what I notice is that I actually see a fair number of boys. I mean, not, you know, I'm not talking 50%, but you know, in every class, I've got a couple boys who might paint their nails or have grown their hair out longer, you know, maybe wearing clothes that are more kind of traditionally feminine. Um, and I think, yeah, like you said, I think that um, kind of the modern consciousness around kind of toxic masculinity and things like that, which I think is often very valuable. I think it's led to this sort of thing where I think a lot of uh, a lot of kids are a little skeptical of the kind of cool guy, tough guy, traditional masculinity. And there's kind of social I wouldn't say there's social pressure to be more feminine, but there's it's not like a death sentence. It's kind of considered cool, a little enlightened. It makes you look like you're, you know, you're really thinking things through and not just going with the crowd. Um, uh, so, you know, for boys, I think that situation has really changed. And I think overall that's positive, even if it's a little silly, I think that's positive. But the big shift for me has been to see that um, in some sense, you know, depending on how you look at it, uh, this is a time of peak gender nonconformity for girls in the sense that there are a lot of female students at my school who have short hair, who wear baggy clothes, who don't wear makeup, etc. But the the thing is that every, pretty much every single one of them identifies as non-binary or transgender. I don't think I have maybe any female students who have short short hair and don't identify as non-binary or trans or at least queer in some way. So it leads to this very odd situation where, you know, in one sense I see a lot of uh, female students who are really challenging restrictive gender norms. The problem is that in order to do so, you basically need to declare yourself non-binary or transgender or whatever. Um, to just be a norm, you know, quote unquote normal girl, but to not engage in, in femininity, um, I think that is surprising to people. I think that is off-putting to a lot of people, a lot of the other students and things like that. And And so... Um, you know, I get, again, I, I think there are people who obviously maybe uh, don't have a problem with that, and they think that's great. But for me, it's certainly concerning to see this kind of weird, uh, you know, um, solidification of gender roles in that sense where, yeah, now individual people are allowed to opt out, but in order to opt out, they have to say, I'm not a girl. But it's like, as long as you are a girl, you are expected to be extremely feminine. And I think that that's really upsetting and it's one of those things where i don't understand why more of my coworkers and colleagues don't have a problem with that um i mean i, I you know I, I tell this story all the time i when i first started at the the last school i was at um you know i was we were going through the procedures for dealing with student records and things like that and just immediately you know as if it was a totally normal thing to say uh, my supervisor said you know you might want to do a pronoun check-in if you're ever concerned. And then the example she gave is, for example, if you have a, a girl who comes in with a short haircut, you might wanna ask her, hey, are your pronouns still she, her? And I'm just sitting there like, what on earth are you talking? How do you not see that as the most sexist, regressive, conservative thing you could ever say? But a lot of these people who think of themselves as very progressive and very against uh, gender stereotypes don't have an issue with it. And I, I must admit, I'm a little baffled by that. I, I don't know how that would not strike you as obviously bad that the the category of girl is now reserved almost entirely for for you know children who practice femininity and i think that's seems obviously bad but um you know i, I think that's the way it is right now
What's the pressure like on you as a teacher when it comes to this subject? What are you expected to do? Um, wh what are you expected to say to them? What norms or um, policies are you expected to uphold? And, and what happens if a teacher objects? Yeah, so I mean, I think this is a this is this question of, you know, kind of what is it like for teachers on the ground is, I think, a question that um, the real answer, or at least the answer from my experience, I think kind of leaves both both sides of the debate a little frustrated, because I think both sides of the debate kind of have inaccurate understandings of how things work, right? Because I would say, you know, to to the maybe more conservative or critical side, you know, who are acting as though teachers are, you know, every day we start with a, you know, pledge of allegiance to the pride flag and just every lesson is about gender identity and sex and all that stuff. You know, that isn't the way it is. As a teacher, I don't feel a huge amount of pressure to like proactively bring this stuff into the classroom. You know, I certainly never bring it up. I don't have a pride flag or anything like that, you know, um, or a trans flag or anything like that. And I've never felt pressure to do so. So I think, you know, in terms of just day to day, behavior you know as a teacher just you're kind of you know hey what are you going to teach today what are you going to teach tomorrow you know there isn't maybe the pressure that some people think there is but on an administrative level or just kind of on a in the background level there is a surprising amount of um kind of institutional and administrative uh framework for this stuff um that you are kind of expected and required to engage in you know so i do have um Things like, you know, hey, getting all the children's pronouns on file, right? And of course, district policy is that you always have to use them. You always have to change them whenever there's a request. You always have to refer to a student by exactly what, they're, what, they, what they tell you they want to be referred by, right? What they sometimes call the chosen name. Um, tons of stuff about, you know, hey, you can never, uh, you know, you have to get permission from the student before you use, uh, you know, so, so if a if a student comes to you and says, "Hey, I want to be called he him at school," um, you need to get their permission before you uh, you before you would let their parents know that, and that if you do communicate with their parents and they say, "I don't want them to know I've changed pronouns," then you have in your records, you know, there's a spot for at home pronouns, and this is one of those things that I think is. You know, it's one of those things where it's almost like a Rorschach test where when I tell people that when I say yeah the school has this very specific system set up so that I can have a set of pronouns for the student to use at school. And then if they want the parents to not know that they're going by that I have another set of pronouns to use when I communicate home. And when I tell people that it's like half of the people just lose their minds and are furious about that and the other half say that sounds great what's the problem right and so. Um, I guess it all depends on your views about the school and teachers and all and your relationship with students, but it is definitely, um, you know, it is there. There is a lot of emphasis on kind of accommodating students on really any request they make around that stuff. And then, you know, really there in the driver's seat when it comes to, you know, whether or not their parents find out, whether or not there's any sort of notification on any of that. So, you know, administratively, that stuff definitely exists. And then, of course, every once in a while, there are assemblies or, you know, um, you know, kind of school announcements and stuff that are always, you know, especially during various months where things come up but you know so it's it's an it's a kind of a jarring experience as a teacher because i can go you know weeks without even you know thinking about it but in the back of my head it's all i also know that all of those systems are in place and whenever they do come up i am definitely expected to do exactly what you know the the 
the policies say. So, you know, I think that it's, um, it's certainly not, you know, an everyday thing in the way some people maybe who are a little over the top will suggest, but it's also, um, it's also absolutely a part of the school and the school knows it's happening and is very strict on exactly what to do. So, you know, um, there is definitely pressure. I mean, I'm sure that if I called a student, you know, if the student said, Hey, I want to be known by this name. And I said, sorry, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to call you by your birth name or whatever. Obviously, you know, I, I would be immediately disciplined. I, I can't even imagine what would happen, right? It's really not an option. Um, same goes with, you know, if I, I think if I did, reveal a child's pronouns or something to their parents without their permission. I think, again, that would that would obviously be a serious issue. I mean, I do think the school uh, takes that stuff very, very seriously. So, you know, uh, again, it's not exactly like maybe either side would tell you, but uh, definitely there are elements uh, of, of both views that are definitely uh, reflect reality. You know, the the don't say gay bill, part of it was about censorship, right? And part of it was about the government imposing what teachers can and can't say in a classroom. But the vast majority of the bill was about preventing those kind of policies uh, in which children and teachers or school personnel sort of collude and leave parents out of, you know, what some feel is a kind of psychological trajectory. And what do you think Whereas other people think that that's, you know, for, for many kids and especially gay kids growing up, they confided in their teachers, teachers provided this safe haven or this first stop. And when kids really did feel unsafe, that is, they felt like they might be hurt or, or actually kicked out for telling their parents who they were, whom they were attracted to. What is the appropriate role um, of a teacher now when it comes to sex and gender and, and what should you be what should you be teaching them and what should you be what role should you play in terms of their you know gender identities whether or not we accept that concept they they certainly accept it so yeah, I mean, I think obviously it's an extremely complicated uh, issue with a lot of moving parts, but to just to kind of try and move through them uh, kind of step by step if I can, you know, I would say I don't support things like, you know, that so-called don't say gay bill. And I know there are people who don't like that it's referred to that way. I think that's, you know, pejorative, but um, whatever you want to call that bill. I, I think that in the end, top down uh, state interventions to try and keep students um, you know, from being exposed to this sort of thing. Um, I just, in the end, I, I don't think that that is, I don't think that it's ever a good idea to have the state coming in and really trying to kind of reactively prevent um, uh, things they don't like from being taught. So I would have no problem if people wanted to back a kind of comprehensive, you know, legislation around sex ed that covers gender identity and things like that and kind of creates um, sort of, standardized practical uh, guidelines for what should and shouldn't be taught. And I think there's a ton of debate about that. But I think that, um, you know, that's the path to go on. I, I don't like the idea of these sort of, you know, what, you know, look at the school, look at what you don't like being taught, and then pass a bill to say you can't teach that, right? I think as a teacher, you know, um, I would be extremely uncomfortable 
with, you know, having the state just sort of hand down this on top of all the other regulations, on top of all the other curriculum, pass down, oh, hey, here are some new rules about what you can and can't say. I don't think that's fair to teachers. And I don't think in the end, it's a, a productive way to deal with things. Um, and, you know, I would I would say the same thing about, you know, issues I have, right? So, you know, there are things that are taught in history classes that I think are, you know, that I'm really opposed to, but I wouldn't want a liberal government to come in and say, hey, we passed the don't say dumb stuff about the Civil War Act. And now it says you can't say, you know, you can't say X, Y, and Z thing. I would say rather I'd want those, you know, liberal governments to, to come together, those legislatures to come together and craft positive, you know, uh, legislation positive guidelines for what should and shouldn't be taught rather than kind of just looking at what is currently being taught and saying I don't like that and trying to shut it down right especially because I think just as a matter of course many of those bills are very poorly written and I read them and it gives me a heart attack as a teacher because I'm like I have no idea how I could navigate this and I would be so afraid of inadvertently you know doing something that some overzealous you know a uh, uh, person out there could could hear about and come after me. So I, I think creating any kind of climate of fear or adversarial relationship with teachers is I just not, I don't think it's the way forward. Um, but with that said, I also think that there are ways that, you know, uh, I think there are things that are being taught in schools that, you know, even if I agree with them or don't agree with them, I think they're not productive. I mean, I think, I think the issue is that, um, and I say this again, as a teacher, right? I think teachers really need to challenge this view we often have of ourselves as the self-appointed saviors of children whose parents don't believe the same things we believe right you know and so i think that um you know obviously there's a baseline of respect and compassion and human dignity that we should you know that we are not only you know uh allowed to teach children but required to teach children we should absolutely make it central to our education to say hey there are certain human rights and basic dignity and respect that everyone deserves but there are people who accept all of that and still believe, you know, that, you know, I don't know, that the best family for a kid is, you know, a, a mom and a dad or that, you know, the best approach to racism is colorblindness or whatever, anything like that. And I, I think that those ideas, even if maybe I disagree with them, you know, I don't think that it's abusive or, or horrible that those families are raising their children that way. And I don't think it should be the role of parents to, to step or the role of teachers to to kind of say, hey, whatever your mom and dad told you at home, you know, here's what's actually the case. I think that's, um, I think that's inappropriate. I don't think it's the right relationship we should have with our students. But I also think just practically, it's not working. You know, there are, you know, I'm a, I'm a very far left person myself, and they're all sort. You know, I'd love to to get up in front of my class and just talk about, you know, how terrible capitalism is and how we should, you know, we should have abortion on demand and all this stuff. But I also recognize that even if I think those things are good, that it's ultimately not sustainable to have a world where, you know, 80% of parents are sending their kids to schools where those kids are learning things those parents don't like. You know, I think as teachers, we need to accept that we are not, um, you know, that we are often out of step with the rest of the culture in terms of just how progressive, just how liberal we are. And that, you know, I think we need to get better at restraining ourselves and kind of being willing to say, hey, that's not my role to tell you about that. So I think, um, so yeah, you know, I think those bills are not the right approach. I think they're the blunt instruments where what you really need is a, a really, you know, top to bottom kind of positive philosophy about what schools are there for, not just this kind of, hey, anything we don't like, we're going to make it illegal. And if you say something else we don't like next year, next year we'll make that illegal too. Um, and the final thing I'll say, though, is that, you know, I think a lot of these issues are intricately 
tied to the general shift in educational philosophy that we've seen over the last 10 or 15 years, where schools have gone from being about, you know, just sort of basic academic skills to being a much more holistic whole life structure where, you know, nowadays, you know, my school has mental health counseling for kids. It has substance abuse interventions for kids. It has, you know, uh, you know, counselors, career counselors. It has, you know, a food pantry. It has, you know, a health center and all those other things. And I'm not, I think all those things are valuable, but I think there has been a real bloat in terms of the sort of mission of schools lately, uh, in large part, because I think the other, um, the other organizations and institutions that should be doing those things have failed largely because of, you know, the neoliberal regime we live in and the cutbacks and austerity that have been forced on a lot of us um, in the last 20 years. Um, and so I think, you know, on one hand, I'm like, hey, I think it's great that schools are picking up the slack and uh, providing services that students won't get otherwise. But I think that it's led to this kind of um, kind of ever expanding role of what the teacher should be. And in that context, it's very hard to not bring in gender identity and sexuality. You know, it's like if if as a teacher, I'm expected to be kind of intimately familiar with the mental health and personal stability and, you know, lifelong uh, ambitions of all of my students, well, then I'm naturally going to run into these issues of sexuality and gender. Right. And so I think that trying to sort of um, cordon off gender and sexuality is this thing teachers shouldn't touch. You're not going to have any success with that you know, so long as the teacher is expected to poke and prod every other part of a student's life and then just conspicuously leave that alone, right? So I think in general what we, you know, uh, again, not to just fall back on my kind of, you know, traditional leftist tropes, but I think what we really need is we need the government and the state to step in and start providing a lot of these services in places that aren't schools. You know, we need more free clinics for students to get care there. We need more free and reduced cost counseling and programs that get children connected and things like that that don't take place in the school because the problem is that the school has essentially become you know a whole host of things it was never meant to be and as a teacher you know sometimes I feel like you know it's like instead of just being a teacher I'm a teacher slash social worker slash you know motivational speaker slash career uh, counselor slash you know crisis intervention specialist and so on there's so many roles to play and I think um, you know I think really kind of cutting back on that and really being firmer about what the role of education is and the role the teacher is by itself what I think el eliminate a lot of these difficulties. I think part of the problem is that, you know, um, teachers are being asked to be very, very involved in students' lives, but then also very, very penalized if they, you know, uh, cross any one of a million little uh, kind of cultural taboos. And so it's just an untenable situation. Things, things need to change in some way, because the, the balance we're at right now is I, I don't think it's working for anyone. And I think it's inflaming a lot of totally unnecessary uh, attentions out there. So, you know, if I had to offer though that positive views, you know, I you look, I think transgender people exist, right? There are people out there who identify as transgender and there are people out there who are gay. And I think there's nothing wrong with a, a class on sexual health, a class on sociology, a class on whatever, uh, bringing it up and mentioning it. But the problem that I have as a teacher is that I think um, I think there's this idea out there that if you ask every kid, you know, every week or whatever, hey, what are your pronouns? Hey, do you still identify as your gender assigned at birth? 
you know, there's this idea out there that people have a very essentialist idea of trans identity where they see it as something you really are just born with, or if you're not born with it, it's some sort of almost like spiritual essence. And uh, because of that, they don't really see a danger in kind of introducing trans stuff at every possible uh, instance, because they think, well, the people who it's meant for will pick it up and the people it's not meant for will, will, will try it on and it won't work for them and they'll move on. But I think that just ignores so much of what I see among my students and so much about what I think we know about kids in general, which is that, you know, if you just, if you kind of immerse kids in this stuff over and over and over again, um, I think it's really naive to think that you're not going to have um, negative consequences coming out of that. I think you're, that you're not going to have people, uh, you know, who, who could have handled their distress and frustration and, and anxiety and things like that in, in totally productive ways, um, instead kind of, you know, go down those paths. And, and so I think that, you know, for me, I, um, I don't think there's anything wrong with covering transgender people and gay people and you know, lesbians and bisexual people, and of course, you know, all, all sorts of people uh, in situations where it is relevant to the material being taught. Um, but I think there is an issue with sort of schools seeing it as their job to sort of help students navigate through the the gender journey or whatever you know it's sometimes referred to because i think in the end a lot of times i think that does just um you know i i think it does more harm than good i i think it it uh and i think this idea that um you know some people are just 100 trans and that's guaranteed from birth and some people will never be trans and it's not even a possibility i think that mindset leads people to do things that in any other situation would be uh with with kids would be considered obviously unproductive well i've been thinking about and writing a bit about school as the new church and that church mm -hmm. attendance is at an all-time low and so you you're mentioning all the different roles all, all the different institutions that have been folded into the school and some of that is because that's the best way to reach kids who need help. Yeah. It's at, is while they're at school. But the problem with school being a church is that um, many people with of different belief systems are converging, you know, on that property. And you choose a church according to your belief system, but you don't choose a public school anyway according to your belief system yeah. and believing in public schools or not being able to afford private schools so for those of us who see the concept of gender identity as just that a concept or, or a belief system our children are being told that there's one appropriate way to think about it um, and th that doesn't necessarily represent our beliefs, which is um, very complicated and difficult because I have a way that I talk about gender in my house. And I explain to my kids that I see it very differently than most of the adults in their lives and that they're going to learn things at school that I disagree with and that um, are not in line with our family's belief system but then we have to talk about whether or not it's okay to say that um yeah. so we have the like don't say gender bill kind of in our house <laughs> where i have to say you know you you could say it but there could be real repercussions there could be social repercussions 
for talking about how our family's belief system is different from what they're teaching you at your school. And I don't know if the, the one time I met you, this I think this had already happened, that my 10-year-old was asked to put whether she was cisgender, transgender, or non-binary on this kind of identity art project yeah. they were working on. And it put her in a strange position of sort of having to choose between the kind of school situation and what's talked about in our in our house, which of course is not that we we I know more trans people now than I, you know, ever did before I started talking about this in a yeah. more complex way. But but particularly the idea that everybody has a gender identity, that's something that I challenge in my household. And then her friend said, we were walking home from an after-school program and they were talking to me about what they'd done in school that day. And her friend said, well, we also had a lesson about pronouns and I don't really understand they, them pronouns. And I said, well, you should probably ask your teacher, you know, to explain not me because the way yeah. I'm explaining it, it might make things more difficult for you. Mm -hmm. um, so I was giving them lessons in censorship and self-censorship. And, but it turns out I didn't need to because the little girl said to me, well, I don't feel comfortable asking because I wouldn't want to offend anyone. Yeah. So not only had they taught that gender identity was a fact, um, but they had communicated to the children that there were, you couldn't question anything about it. Um, and that seemed really terrible to me. That seemed like the worst part of it that they had taught it in a way that questioning anything about it, even even to clarify. Was yeah. Not. And I guess all that comes back to the question, which is what should parents do um, if they object to what's being taught, you know, other than going to a school board meeting and getting into <laughs> fist fights, what should we do? <laughs> well I don't do? recommend that. So what should we do? Exactly. <laughs> so I mean, like a Loudoun County parent. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I guess what I would say, right. The, the thing that, you know, I, I, this is, I, I have people say, you know, is they say, Hey, I'm uncomfortable with this stuff. What should I do as a, as a parent? And, you know, I always say, you know, I'm not a parent, so I don't, you know, you have to make your own decisions about your, your own values and where you rank all those importance, but just practically, you know, I just think people should remember parents should remember that most teachers are not activists even the people who might be doing that might be you know hey i make you know here's your name card put you know your name your pronouns something like that you know they're probably not doing that because they're you know they're rubbing their hands in glee and saying you know oh man i'm so excited to see if i can turn some kids trans you know uh, obviously there are you know there are teachers who are really, really into it and are more like activists, right? But even at the very liberal school where I teach, I would say that, gosh, you know, maybe 10% of the teachers are particularly into it. It's just that the other 90% don't really get what's going on and just say, yeah, that's fine. So, I mean, you know, I would say my first thing is that you should remember your teachers, your kids' teachers probably work in 60 hours a week and probably didn't think very hard about most of these assignments. Right. Most of those assignments probably come from the district or they come from a curriculum that's been picked for them. And, you know, if they're just sort of passively watching John Oliver or whatever, it's not weird that they would not have a problem with it. You know, and I think that, 
You know, I think uh, if you're even at the point where you are asking yourself, well, what should I maybe talk to a teacher about this, then you just have to recognize you're already f deeper into this subject than 99% of parents on the planet, right? Like, um, you know, and that doesn't mean you're a weirdo or you're, a, a, you know, a, you know, you're you've lost your mind, but it does mean you should just always remember that probably the teacher you're talking about knows a lot less about this stuff than you do, knows a lot less about maybe any potential problems. They're probably just doing it because they've been asked to or because, you know, they saw it on Pinterest and thought, oh, that's cool. And so I would just say the most important thing is just remember uh, is to not assume that the teacher you're dealing with is some kind of hard-headed transgender activist who who really has it out for you because you know because they they hate your worldview or whatever and to not engage um kind of on that you know straight to 10 on the aggression you know i've i've talked to parents who you know i stormed into my to the teacher's thing and said you know what the hell are you doing with this and slapped it on their desk and you know if, if you if you engage like that, it's not weird for them to shut down and for them to think, you know, okay, this person's just a loon. And then your relationship with them is is going to be spoiled. But on the other hand, you know, you also shouldn't just do nothing. If you think it's important, then I would say the best thing to do would probably just be to sort of politely reach out to them and say, you know, hey, I, you know, I don't, um, you know, I don't want to antagonize you and I recognize you have a thing or whatever, but I, I'd rather my student not, do, you know, do this is can we have an alternative or, you know, hey, um, you know, is it is it okay if I do it, you know, to think of something constructive, you know, I have teacher or excuse me, I have parents all the time, not for this, but for, you know, a bunch of different things in school, you know, will will email me and, and say, you know, hey, you know, my, my kid is struggling with this, would it be okay if we did this instead? And usually if they recommend something and it's not ridiculous, then I'm happy to do that because they did the work, they came up with the solution. And as long as it's not a bunch of work for me to do it, I'm happy with it, right. And I think a lot of teachers are that way. So I think if you, you know, if you come to them and say, hey, you, you know, you groomer pervert, why are you coming after my kid, you know, they're never going to do anything. Um, and if you try again, I'm gonna, you know, post you to libs of TikTok or whatever, then there, then, you know, there's not going to be any sort of constructive thing. And you probably are going to tart mark your kid out, you know, in a way that you don't want. But I think that most teachers are pretty conflict averse and most teachers just sort of want to do what works. And I, I really think I've seen people have real success of just saying, you know, hey, uh, you know, and the important thing to do too is say, don't try and convert your teacher, your kid's teacher, right? Like, you know what, like you're, trust me, I'm like, I think another issue, right, is that there are a lot of, a lot of parents out there um, and I don't mean in any negative way, but I think that they have a lot of arguments and a lot of like talking points in their head that they don't get to use a lot. And I think a lot of them sometimes when these conflicts come up, they're like, oh, finally, here's my chance to offer my ironclad 25 step argument on why trans women aren't women or something like that, right? And it's like, look, that's not your, that's not gonna be productive, right? You, you aren't here to convince your kid's teacher to become, you know, to become critical of this stuff, right? So I and I think signposting that at the front, just saying, hey, look, I, you know, I understand you, these are your these values and I, and I totally get why you're doing this. But, you know, I'd prefer to, to maybe have, you know, be OK if my kid doesn't put that on there. And, you know, the other thing I'll say, the last thing I'll say about this, too, is, you know, one of the things is that the um, one of the things that kind of emphasis on gender and sex in schools has done is it's really emphasized among a lot of teachers the importance of privacy and the importance of, of safety for kids. Right. So I think using that language too, is saying, hey, my kid doesn't feel comfortable talking about this or my kid doesn't feel safe 
writing down their gender identity in a class of a bunch of other kids, you know, heck, even if you want to even do it ambiguously. So they think that maybe your kid is, is so into trans stuff that they, they'd rather not, you know, you know, they're, they're worried there are transphobes in the classroom or something, you know, if you, you know, you can present it in a way that doesn't immediately mark you as a kind of ideological opponent, but you just come as a, as a parent who says, you know, Hey, I'm concerned that maybe, you know, this is going to be uncomfortable for my child. They'd rather not. And just, is there a way we can help them be more comfortable? And I think the majority of teachers um, are going to at least be willing to work with you on that. So I think um, it can really poison the well to kind of assume from the start that every teacher is, you know, exactly like the insane ones you, you see online every once in a while. So you could frame it in terms of, um, right, if, if you don't want to reveal your, uh, you know, I never would label myself as gender critical just because I'm not entirely sure what it means. So, um, yeah, me neither. <laughs> I don't, I don't have any, I don't have, I don't have any labels. No, I mean, I'm not ideologically aligned with any one thing, but I like the idea of not, um, lecturing them about my beliefs or converting them. I think that's really powerful. But I like the idea of framing it as for privacy reasons, I'd like my daughter to skip the lessons on gender identity. Could you let me know when they are? Yeah. I mean, or, that, I, mean I always that think. Reasonable? Yeah. I mean, you know, and of course, it depends on the school and the, the teacher in the class, whether it's a, you know, fourth grade class or an 11th grade class, there's going to be a big difference there. But, you know, I always joke that, you know, um, I think the one time I was ever really pointedly asked to put my pronouns on a name badge, um, you know, I just I I don't remember exactly what I said, but I basically hinted that, you know, I had some crazy complex gender identity that couldn't be captured by by any set. And then that was fine. Right. And they were like, OK, well, we don't want to make you, you know, I think what I said, you know, I said, I'm I'm not really comfortable, um, you know, announcing to everyone. Uh, what what pronouns I would prefer or something like that, you know, in, in a way that, you know, has a sort of plausible deniability to it. And there's such an emphasis on safety. There's such an emphasis on um, kind of accommodation in those spaces that oftentimes uh, there are sort of built in uh, ways to avoid kind of engaging if you don't want to. So I, I would just say, you know, um, you know, just just go in with an open mind, assuming that this is a teacher who really does just want what's best for your kid. Cause even if they are wrapped up in a bunch of dumb stuff, they probably really do. And they probably don't want to antagonize your, your kid. They probably don't certainly don't want to um, uh, indoctrinate them. And, 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 and that's a broader point I would make real quick, right? Is that one of the things that I think a big misunderstanding, right? Is that a lot of people have this idea that teachers and administrators and stuff, that they're really out there wanting to like turn kids trans, right? Or they really want to indoctrinate kids to really question their gender identity. But in some sense, it's actually the exact opposite. One of the reasons I think the teachers are so insistent on this stuff and so, you know, uh, big on kind of cramming it everywhere is because they really think that any kid who is not already trans and essentially trans and unchangeably trans, they just think it's all going to wash off, right? Like if you're, you know, if your kid is in there and they're getting all this stuff on gender identity, it's not because the teacher is hoping you know, the fifth worksheet on gender identity is really going to turn them trans. It's the opposite. It's that they think, well, if your kid isn't trans, then I could give them a hundred worksheets on this and it wouldn't change their minds. Right. So I think oftentimes uh, the, the trans and queer movement is extremely essentialist in that sense, where it's like you're either trans or you're not and social influence has no bearing. 
And so because of that mindset, there's often no fear that you might influence a child in the wrong way. Right. So I think a lot of parents often think like, oh, they're teaching this because they want to, uh, you know, they want to turn my kid trans or whatever. But it's the opposite it's that they're teaching this because they think that there's no risk they might do that. Right. They think that if any kid identifies as trans, it's just because they were essentially immutably trans from the beginning. So I think, you know, adopting that mindset and or understanding that mindset is, is important to understand why a lot of teachers engage the way they do. Well, then what do we need to teach teachers? If, if they're, if, I mean, obviously most clinicians also don't think there's an element or are asserting that there's no element of social contagion either, but what do we have to do to get them to see how much more complicated this is than just some kids are trans and they need social and then possibly medical transition? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I'll say two things about this. One thing is I think that teachers overall, one of the things that really shocked me when I got into this, right, is, you know, because by the time I kind of got into this, I had already started being kind of critical a lot of what I was seeing. I was skeptical a lot of it. And, you know, I had been online. And so I had heard that these public schools are just these ultra liberal dens of, you know, every single person is a radical trans activist or whatever. And I got in and I realized actually 90% of teachers, if you're alone with them in a room, are going to make jokes about this. They're going to roll their eyes at it, right? So first off, I would say that I don't think the majority of teachers have that kind of, um, have that idea that it's like, you know, totally, uh, it's, it's, you know, the majority of teachers, I would say, don't, um, they don't need to be taught that it's more complicated because I think a lot of them do understand that, you know, earlier I was talking about, you know, the more essentialist ones who are the more like hardcore activists, but for teachers who are just sort of observing from afar, a lot of them see it as like a teenage fad. Right. But the difference is that they don't see it as a harmful teenage fad. Right. Like I've made the comparison that a lot of teachers I talk to think that identifying as non-binary or identifying trans is like, going through, you know, the phase where some annoying kid converts to Buddhism in their junior year for like six months and then gives it up or, you know, um, kids who, you know, get really into being vegetarians or something like that. Like they see it as just sort of a cringy thing that kids do. Um, and so, you know, I think that, um, you know, I think it's the wrong, the question isn't so much, you know, how do you convince them that it's more complicated? Because I think plenty of them will accept that it's complicated. I think the thing is, how do you convince them that it's dangerous? Or how do you convince them that there's real drawbacks, right? Because that's the brick wall that I hit, you know, is yes, there are definitely activist teachers, like I was talking about, who 100% they think, you know, every kid is either trans or they're not. And, and, you know, no amount of social influence one way or another could ever have any bearing. And those are the teachers who are often or the organizations that are often producing these materials, producing these lessons. But individual teachers, I think a lot of them see that it's more complicated. They just don't see the downsides. A lot of them seem to think it's this kind of silly thing that kids mess around with. And then if they ever get far enough to do real medical transition, well, by then, the doctors will have figured out that it's necessary and then it's fine, right? So I think the real place to focus on is to really just, you know, get people to realize that there are real drawbacks to like a false positive, drawbacks to this sort of thing. Because I think that um, right now, a lot of the reason that teachers do it is just because they're like, yeah, who cares? It's fine, you know? Like I said, you know, it's not gonna, you know, 
some kid thinks they're trans for, for six months, that's fine. You know, it doesn't, they don't see, you know, on the more ideological side, I don't think they see some of the ways in which this stuff is really regressive and sexist and harmful for, for girls. But I think also they just are like, they'll, they'll grow out of it. It's fine. You know, so I think that, um, you know, if I could tell any teacher anything, it would just be like, hey, there's actually a real chance that a kid could go down a road that they don't need to go down and that they might miss out on having a much healthier, much more grounded, much more, you know, feminist or whatever um, understanding of things. And that that's a valuable thing we don't want to lose just because we're like, well, you might as well try it out, you know. So I think that's a, a big thing is just, you know, being able to without being scaremongering, you know, you don't want to go to people and say, oh, you know, what about all these you know, horrible surgeries and complications and all this stuff, but just generally, you know, asking, you know, hey, like, what might the the cost be if a kid decides for two years of their life to, to, to put into this? You know, I think about myself, you know, it's like I didn't end up going on hormones or having surgery, but I still look back at those couple of years. And I'm like, man, you know, I would have been a healthier, happier person if I had not kind of put all that energy into something that I look back and think was, you know, it was really a way for me to meet other deeper issues I had. And so I think, um, you know, I think that's the big thing is, you know, trying to show these teachers that there's an opportunity cost here that, you know, high school isn't this time where you can just take two years on some kind of dumb, you know, thing you you learned about in health class and that that actually might be a real problem, you know, so I, I think that's a, a, an important thing to emphasize. So my last question is, what can we do to support teachers during this time when there's so much crazy fighting over what's being taught in schools? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, uh, I think um, I think the first thing to do is just recognize that like teaching is a hard job, right? And 90% of what I do, not, not even 90, 99% of what I do in the world at, at my job has nothing to do with any of this, right? And so, you know, you have to think of teachers as teachers first, and who sometimes get wrapped up in gender identity stuff, not as like gender ideologues who, you know, every once in a while get to teach a lesson on you know, and teach a math class, you know what I mean? And so I think that's the first thing is just understanding that teachers have full jobs that are full of a lot of other stuff and they're not always interested in seeing everything they do through the lens of this particular culture war uh, battle. I think the other thing is, you know, is it it's hard to feel like there are people out there who really do think you're a total piece of garbage um and i'd be lying if i said kind of the vitriol towards teachers that i see from the right uh, doesn't get to me it is really depressing to see you know i mean in some ways i you know in some ways i'm like the you know uh you know it's hard especially because for me i've had a lot of as a teacher who is critical of a lot of this stuff i've had a lot of right-wing uh, you know, kind of people and, and even organizations reach out to me to try and talk, but immediately they are so hostile to me because I am not their perfect view of what like a good old American teacher is, right? And it's like, doesn't take too long before they realize that, hey, I have other opinions, you know, that are more progressive, more left-wing. Uh, it doesn't take long sometimes for, for them to label me as just another crazy wacko and then you know, there's no, there's nothing I can do. So I would just say, you know, just remember that teachers aren't these one dimensional heroes or villains, there's a difficult job, and that, you know, the kind of aggression and misplaced rage towards teachers um, is just not, it's not productive, it's not helpful, and it's just sort of bad behavior, right? And so, um, you know, 
I, I think that's important. I think just not expecting teachers to be martyrs. You know, a lot of times I'll go online or whatever and I'll see people who are like, I, I don't know why a teacher would follow this rule. You know, the te this teacher should just say, uh, you know, no, I'm going to use she, her pronouns because because you're a girl and girls are girls and I'm not going to play along. And it's like they really expect me to just destroy my career for nothing, because, of course, the result is if I ever did that, I would just get fired and they'd bring in an especially pro trans teacher to replace me. And then the only thing that would ever result would be that one kid had learned that you know, teachers who have problems with this are all, you know, rude and dismissive creeps. And I don't want that. So um, I just think, yeah, not expecting teachers to be martyrs and realizing that these are complex issues that need to be solved, you know, legislatively and culturally. Just trying to do the best job they can. And then otherwise, I think the other thing to do, you know, in terms of kind of like more, you know, material support is, you know, is accept that, you know, you, you as someone who holds a minority view you know even if you think it's the most correct view in the world you know it, you know it's might be your job to to get that view to your kids and that you know um in terms of support you know if you're worried about your kid engaging in certain lessons and, and you really think it's going to be disruptive or upsetting to them then like i said you know i gave my my you know approach to how to deal with that but i would also just encourage people where you know if your kid is going to have to sit through one day of health class where they talk about, you know, cisgender, transgender and stuff like that. Um, and you'll know, go over the terms and the ideas of stuff, you know, if you can sit down with them at the kitchen table that, you know, that evening and just say, Hey, you know what, we really disagree with this stuff. Um, do you have any questions? Let's talk about it. Then maybe it doesn't need to become a battleground with the teacher, you know? So I would, I would just say that, you know, um, you know, understanding that, uh, that, that, uh, you know, sometimes if you're upset with the way things are going in schools that it's okay to just say hey kids this isn't how we feel let's talk about it ourselves but in school just you know just just you know you, you might hear stuff in history class we don't agree with you might hear stuff in you know your your social studies class we don't agree with but you know let's talk about it and let's handle how to you know maybe let's go you know support a candidate who might change things or let's go you know write something write a letter to the editor about it but let's not you know maybe make this a battleground every single moment i think that alone would would take a lot of pressure off you know teachers who feel like everything we do nowadays is politicized you know it, it's really hard and and i don't think i think the vast majority of us don't want that and so maybe that's the last thing it's just realize the vast majority of us don't want to be doing a lot of this stuff we just feel like we have to and we feel like we can't really say no because we've been told if you don't do this kids are going to commit suicide and no you know even if you're 90 percent sure it's nonsense there's a lot of good people who are going to say you know what if there's even a 10 percent chance this is true i'm not going to have some kids blood on my hands and you know and and the fact that that happens that's the the fault of the activists who you know weaponize that sort of stuff it's not the fault of the people who who take it on good faith and 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 you know make compromised choices with bad information. So, you know, just being more compassionate, more thoughtful, more open-minded about, you know, kind of the, the, the bad situation we're in, you know? Well, it does make me think though, <laughs> that it's incredibly important that they do get correct information, for instance, about suicide and kids with gender dysphoria or identifying as trans. I mean, they've got to at some point know that the risk for suicide is 
likely not only not because of gender dysphoria, but not mitigated by transition. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's the funny thing I always say is like, you know, the other thing is a lot of people are sort of miserable about this stuff because the trans, you know, the transgender movement is, is so big on doom and gloom about, Hey, you know, you really are hearing all the time, you know, Hey, kids are going to commit suicide. Their, their lives are going to be ruined. It's the worst thing that ever happened. And, you know, I think sometimes people forget that, you know, our side or whatever you want to call it really has the positive message, which is that, Hey, there are ways to people can be healthy and, and deal with this stuff that, you know, most of the time these things resolve that, you know, there are, you know, positive messages to say, Hey, there's actually nothing wrong with these kids' bodies. They don't need surgeries. They're perfect just the way they are, that they can get therapy that helps them. They can do all of these things, right? I mean, it, it's a positive message. And I think there are a lot of teachers out there, a lot of liberals in general out there who I think would be like, Whew, wow, great to know. But there's just such a stone wall where they just think even considering the idea that they might be wrong, you know, is a is a you know, it's it's so hard to even get that first crack in the wall. But once we do, we should always remember, you know, we're the ones telling people you don't have to be freaked out the way you are. You, you know, it, you don't have to think that some kids' bodies are just bad. You don't have to think that some people are just gonna be miserable their whole lives. You know, you can actually believe in in human flourishing and and health and all those other things and 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 i think that's a really positive message that i think a lot of people would resonate with it is just about chipping down those first barriers and i think those barriers have been erected culturally and they need to be chipped down culturally and i think trying to kind of go to the source to individual teachers and try and whittle down those defenses i think is is not productive i think it's more about you know engaging in the general culture and, and trying to be, you know, get those messages out in general to people. And I think that, um, and I think as those ideas and those approaches kind of disseminate through the culture, listening to detransitioners, things like that, you know, I think we're going to see a shift in the general culture. And I think that will be reflected in, in education and other areas. Well, that's such a wonderful note to end on <laughs> um, the side of human flourishing. So thank you so much. This has been incredibly uh, illuminating and insightful. And I know it will be really helpful to uh, parents to hear this. Yeah, I sure hope so. It's been great talking to you.